Being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Well, welcome to the Principal's Office podcast. My name is Jeff Gorski. This podcast is brought to you by Leaders Building Leaders, our organization where we aim to be the difference maker in the leadership development of individuals and organization. Check us out at leaders-building-leaders.com. We work across the charter school landscape in North Carolina to support governance, academics, and operations, um, all things leadership of schools that want to grow. So this, though, is the Principal's Office podcast, a podcast dedicated to teaching and accelerating the principles of school leadership. And this month, we have a treat. We have the opportunity to learn from a dynamic leader, Dr. Mark Tracy. Mark is currently the executive director of Kestrel Heights School, a K-12 public charter school of 1,000 students in Durham, North Carolina. Before entering the charter world, Mark spent time working in traditional schools and in higher ed, so he brings a unique perspective to his current mission, which is to reform a troubled 15-year-old charter school. As you will hear Mark say, uh, his viewpoints on what is successful in education, how to develop and evaluate based on focused results, and and your number one responsibility as an educator, no matter what your position, His viewpoints are highly applicable to the public charter world that we live in, but in reality, they apply to every school, everywhere. So I learned an awful lot from Dr. Tracy over the hour we sat together, and I've also learned a lot from him over the years we've known each other, and I think you will too today. Plus, (laughs) Plus, I guarantee you'll be entertained at the same time. So please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mark Tracy. So, Mark, thank you for, for inviting us into your office. Um, you've had a, a long career in education at this point. You've seen a lot of different things. But one thing I know we have in common is that we both love going to see the Charter School Advisory Board. Yes. What have you gotten out of witnessing that part of our educational system this year? Well, you know, first and foremost, I'm lucky in the sense that I am based close to it. So the accessibility of it is great for me. You know, if I lived on the coast or, you know, in the mountains, it'd be much more difficult. So that is the initial process. But for me, having spent the majority of my career in the public school sector and now coming to a charter school world, it has provided me a better understanding of of what is expected in the charter school world. What are the, the parameters and the aspects within the charter school world? I didn't know much about particularly the governing body, the Office of Charter School. I didn't quite get the organizational structure of it when I first got here. And I know when I first started, I was asking questions and I didn't quite know where to go at times. And so it was it's good to kind of get a good grasp and understanding of the diversity of what they have to address and what the things are focusing on. And on top of that, the secondary piece that I've really gotten to, to better understand is the expectations they have at the schools. You know, what is it they're looking for? That That's not, you know, when you come to a charter school, that's not very clear. It's not as transparent. And hearing 
the questions and things that they ask within those meetings, it has provided me a better idea of how to better prepare my school um, moving forward. Yeah, I think it's worth everybody in charter schools to see it once mm-hmm. because when you do have to stand up there, yes, it can be intimidating. There's some of the, the best school leaders in the state are sitting there looking at you. People from the government can be intimidating too. Do you feel like after spending the time you've spent there that you see it, see that experience in a different light? If so, you had to go in front of them? Yeah. I mean, definitely uh, I have a better respect of how to approach that process. I mean, if you're asked to go there, I think you definitely want to, I would at least listen to a couple meetings and or at least attend a couple meetings because it does give you a better idea. I mean, my style of how I present would have needed to have been adjusted if and when I needed to go there. I think I'm a little more um, comical, maybe that'd be the right, right, right word, but I like to kind of have fun and, and I think... They're, it's not that they're very sterile or not a fun group. They, they joke and have a little fun as well. But you definitely want to come prepared. You know, you've got to think through the process and really not come in winging it. You know, and I'm not saying I would have, but I know I'm very comfortable ad-libbing. I'm very comfortable just, you know, free-flowing. And I think having that experience, if, if and when I have to go in front of them, I will be extremely prepared because there are some there's a good diversity of individuals who run schools who run charter schools so you you can't fake it you know you they they know what's going on absolutely great well let's back up a little bit mark and will you run through that history did you start as a teacher and where you are in administration yeah so you want like my kind of my career bio absolutely wow so uh went to morehouse college in atlanta georgia where i was an elementary education major i taught in atlanta public schools in the uh, dean rusk elementary school the mighty dr which was in southwest atlanta and and the the project in which the school is located is no longer i don't think the the project exists i think the school is is, i go back for homecoming i go by and drive by the school but it's the professional development center so i taught there for a few years um went to harvard uh, uh got my master's i thought i could change the world and i really got into higher education when i was there so after that i went and worked as a dean at the university of oregon and uh, I really enjoyed my time at the University of Oregon. It was a great time. But during that time, I did a lot of recruitment, particularly for students of color. And I kept getting frustrated with the pipeline. Students not being able to access post-secondary education for a variety of different reasons. And it got me to thinking, I need to go back and not just do elementary, but focus on a K-12, really a K-16 agenda. So... I went to the University of Maryland while I did educational research for the university, but I also was doing my doctorate in higher education and, and trying to develop a K-16 model for access to higher education for students of color or low-income students in particular. And uh, during that time, I had, I had two kids and honestly a grad assistantship and doing, doing, some, doing that type of work and having two kids in D.C. just wasn't floating. So I went back and started teaching and fell again in love again. I hadn't been back in the public schools. I was doing research, but I hadn't been in the classroom substantially. And I just fell back in love with it. And I got my uh, administrator's degree, and I got recruited to come to Wilmington, North Carolina. It was, it was an interesting kind of turn of events. My college roommate's mom was in central office and heard I was interested and kind of recruited me down. And 
I went down and became an assistant principal at Murrayville Elementary School and uh, loved it um, and just totally fell in love with school administration. It was great. Uh, New Hanover County was great for me professionally. I thought it was an outstanding place. And from New Hanover, I then became a principal um, of Alderman Elementary School. Then I was asked to uh, get recruited from Wake County to become one of the Renaissance schools. Uh, a few years ago, they did some school turnovers within the within the county, and I was asked to come take over one of those schools and did that. Worked at Durham Central Office for a year or so because continued to grow professionally, and then I'm here now at Castro Heights as the executive director. So a little higher ed, a little elementary, a little central office, but... Uh, it's all about helping kids and moving kids forward. Can you think back to that early time when you were in Atlanta teaching, when you were a young teacher, mm-hmm. about any of the experiences that you had that, that looking back shaped the way you look at schools now? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> there were, I think there were some things from my principal that I really didn't agree with that helped me say, what kind of person am I going to be from a morals perspective of, you know, what do I value? And I won't go into too much depth about that, but it certainly helped me as far as what kind of building level leader I wanted to be. But more importantly, what it really galvanized with me from a career perspective was I was working in one of the rougher schools in the, in the city. And there were parents who had horrific social issues going on. But the one thing all of them cared about was their kids. You know, they they were struggling in life at a significant level. But they somehow got themselves together to show up at a parent-teacher conference or an event. and And they were able to just get it together. And I, and I, and I became committed to making sure I did the best I could for the kids that came into my school because no matter what environment, no matter what their home life was, everybody in society was expecting us as a school to help prepare these students for the future. And that hunger has never gone away. That respect of what we do has never gone away. Um, I remember I had a girl who, who could not talk in second grade, could not talk. And to have her grow and have her develop over that year and see her parents who were, had significant drug issues changed my life, changed my life. I, I, she wasn't on grade level. This wasn't a movie now, you know, but the, the power of a school to help a family or an individual. And then as you get further in the process at the school level, to have a school change, help a community you know, and, and change people's lives. You know, I, I believe education is the key to social mobility. I mean, if you choose to do something, that's okay. But if you don't have that choice, that's not okay. And I think education provides everyone the opportunity to make choices in life. And, and I think that's what we're really here for. And working in Atlanta Public Schools galvanized my desire to help all students access Society. Is there a year that you can that that you think of in your mind, as far as what you refer back to as your 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 most satisfying success in education? Is there a year, or is it the whole body that you think of? No, I I, I don't know if this is a good character or a bad character. 
I'm never satisfied. I, 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 you know, I've always had good results, but I've never been satisfied. If I were to say the most enjoyable time I had was as an assistant principal at Murrayville Elementary School. We had a great group because we opened the school. That was that fresh start. There was that community. There was that, that collaboration. There was a, it was a good mix of veteran but young professionals. It was just a fun group to be around. But as far as like me saying like this is my this is my shining star, this is my year, no. Because in every situation with all the successes, I also see just as many areas in which we could have done better and we should have done better. And so I'll, I don't think I'll ever be satisfied. I, it's, it's, I, it's a positive and negative thing to have in my life, but I think it drives me each and every day. But it, it's not always good to have because, because you, at some point you want to feel that satisfaction of getting a job done. You know, it's like more, I get it from like mowing my lawn and things like that nature. You know, where like because you could the look job back. is never done. Yeah, that's, the job that's is never the, done. The world we live in is that the job is never done, and I think that the the most successful educators are the ones who, who are in it to battle. Yeah, not to win. Yeah, yeah. to yeah. battle. Yeah, because yeah. there is no winning. I mean. The winning is 100% of every kid reaches their maximum potential. And, and anybody who's been in education knows how many variables that are in our control and are not in our control to make that a reality. And so you just battle. You're absolutely right. It's just, you know, and it's that, you know, I, I know you're a former athlete, Mr. Gorski, you know, and, and it's that let's go to practice, let's work, keep working. And as a team or as an individual, tr- striving for perfection. And I think... Anytime you ever feel like, okay, I've reached that perfection, maybe it's time to, to retire. One of my mentors, uh, Dr. Alonzo Krim, former superintendent of Atlanta Public Schools, gave me this quote, and, I, and I've used it my whole life. When you're green, you grow. When you're ripe, you rot. Basically, you know, if you are continually striving to grow, then you're healthy and you're continuing. But if you think you've got it, oh, I understand, I got this, then then no. You, 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 in the field of education, you can never, you personally... I cannot imagine ever feeling satisfied. Yeah. So the the latest career transition you made was from working in the Durham Public Office mm-hmm. into Castro Heights Charter School, which mm-hmm. is a K twelve charter school mm-hmm. with a thousand kids. Yep. Um, why at this point in your career did you make that kind of career jump? Yeah. Well, um, I saw an opportunity at Castro. First and foremost, something that I didn't realize until I joined Castro. I have continued in all of mine, except for Mariva, my first administrative position, but in every other situation, I have gone to a school that some would define as in crisis or having some difficulty. And I think it goes back to my Atlanta days where working in that environment is something that I was proud of, I enjoyed at times, but I also, it, it created the dynamics to push me. So one of the pieces of coming to Kesha, Kesha was having some difficulties at the time. And so I felt I could come help. And, and, and that's what we're here for, right? We're here to help, regardless of whatever school environment. So the desire to help was intriguing to me. But on top of that, from a professional perspective, this was my dream job. It's the equivalent of a superintendency, but it's also in an environment small enough to where you can still have that day-to-day relationship with kids and so it's it's the perfect meld of everything that I've always wanted to do 
the kids energize me. Hanging out, like just before we started, I was out in the hallways helping the class change at middle school, just interacting with kids. Hey, are you okay? I, I saw a young lady had kind of a, a glum face. I said, hey, come here. Are you okay? Yeah, she was fine. She was just thinking about something. But that moment that you may not get at a central office at Durham, you know, that opportunity to, hey, Dr. Tracy, as you walk down the hallway. But also at the same time, I'm also engaging with strategic planning for next year and really thinking about three to five years down the line of where we want to be. So the professional opportunities this job provides was was something I couldn't pass up. It was so, for me, it was the perfect fit of where I was professionally. So you spend, you know, 20 years in in public education, in higher education, and then you arrive in this charter school world. What are some things that surprised you or maybe caught you off guard when you started that you didn't see coming so in my experiences, and, I, and I'm sure in other counties, I've, I've learned in, as transitioning to charter school world, it may be a little different, but in New Hanover, in Atlanta, in Prince George's County, in the D.C. area, in, in Wake County, and in, 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 to, in my experiences in Durham, charter schools were never really something we talked about. I mean, it was something that came up, and maybe one school had impacted their population a little bit, but it was... It wasn't something that we really significantly... So I knew very little about charter schools. My movement here was more... I'm, I'm about educating children. It wasn't per se about going to a charter school per se, but as I've grown and been in charter schools, I, I, I'm falling in love with them. Uh, you know, what really surprised me, one of the biggest pieces that surprised me about a charter schools, or being in a charter school was the independence of it, which was great in some regards and very scary in another. You know, coming from the, the public school world, much of what I deal with in the charter school world, I have to deal with, and intimately, was a phone call away, or was decided without me even even having to think about it. It was, you know, the policies, the procedures, the things to keep the school running were taken kind of off my plate as a building level leader. I had to focus more on the operation of my building, and what happened facilities-wise or budget-wise really didn't impact me too much. You know, you, you, you got involved or decisions at the board level or change in administration. I mean, you talked about it and it was something you thought about, but it didn't, it didn't have a day-to-day impact on your school. At the charter school world, what surprised me the most was how, you know, we are what we call like a mom and pop where we, we, we are our own. We don't have an organization to support us. I, I was over or underestimated how much schools do to keep their doors open that's outside of the realm of classroom instruction. And and th- what continues to surprise me is the replication of efforts that charter schools have to go. You know, when there's, you know, hundreds of us and many of us do the same things and the energy and the amount of resources that we use individually is, is replicated at so many levels. I understand why, and there's a reason why, but um, that surprised me a lot. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. That's that's one of our you know that's one of our goals is to try and close that loop a little bit for yeah. people. Well, I mean, I think you know organizations like yourself and others, you know, just even amongst peers, you know, that's another piece that I, that I underestimate. You know. 
you are truly an island unto yourself in many cases. And so when you're a principal, even in a small district, you go to principals meetings, you have peers that you, you know, if, you know, if any, any quality administrator has somebody they can call and say, and you can, you develop that a little bit over charter schools, but there's a competition. There. I mean, there's some dynamics there that, that cause it to be much more difficult. There's not a, uh, in Durham, we do have a consortium meeting where we meet monthly, which is really good for us. But in many cases, I could imagine just being kind of on to yourself. And so that com- that collaborative component is missing in some cases. And that's that, that loneliness that administrators feel, not just from a social perspective, but from a, hey, man, what are y'all doing about this? <laughs> you know, and having somebody to bounce that off of. So groups like your, you know, individuals like yourselves and, and companies and support is so critical, much more critical, I think, in the charter school world than in the public school world where they have a lot of those resources and or some of the work that is required is taken off their place so they can focus more on other pieces. Yeah, and so that fact makes it even more important to have a strong administrative team within your school. And one of the skill sets you have to have from your position of executive director Mm -hmm. is to work to select building level principles, Mm -hmm. right? And that's something that you've seen through through your past positions also. What are some of the things that that jump out at you as the the necessary or must-have skills for the building level leaders underneath? Yeah, I, I think regardless of where you are, you need to be an instructional leader. You need to understand, not necessarily, I think it's impossible for a high school principal to understand the content of everything that's in high school, and, I, and, I, and I'd equate that to any school level. Yeah, so instructional leadership is obviously a critical piece, you know, and it's not necessarily being content specialist. It's being able to go in and see, you know, time on task is off, you know, the wait time for teacher, you know, from the teacher is not there. You know, being able to diagnose instructional components within the classroom to better inform instruction, because ultimately that's what we're here for. I mean, if you can't um, implement a vision of what you feel is quality instruction in your classrooms, then it's difficult. Um, but then I think the other piece that I think there's two other critical components that all administrators in school. And again, I don't think it's just charter school, but I think it's it's exemplified or, or it's it's exacerbated because you're in a charter school is being able to deal with people. You know, people skills is something that we all need to work on. There are certain personalities all of us get along with, and others we just struggle with. But as a leader, you have to have or try to continue to develop skills. And I think managing the loneliness. I think because what I've seen a lot is leaders do things to, to, to bond in ways that is not always productive. You know, trying to be the friends and hang no, no. You know, and that's because because it's a natural thing of for many of us, when you go to become a principal, it really is the first time, at least in my experiences, and I know um, many of us folks listening to our principals, it was the first time professionally where it was like I couldn't talk in great detail with my AP. You know, I couldn't talk with teachers. I could like, there were certain things I had to keep internal. And it's even greater at this charter school because at least at this public school world, you had your central level administrator you could go talk to and bounce some things off of. So managing that loneliness as a principal, so having that confidence in who you are as a professional is so critical because if not, you start to do things to try to fit in and fix and 
and it's and it's all well intended, but it usually doesn't end well because you're you're their favorite, and it, 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 the dynamics change in that way. And, and having to deal with that alone, at least for me professionally, is something that I struggle with, and it's something I look for in my principles. But instructional leadership is where I start. Excellent. So in this in this school, it's K twelve, mm-hmm. and so you you in that process are, le- are selecting someone to watch your elementary, your middle, and your high school. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that challenge of serving within one school all the needs from babies mm-hmm. who just got potty trained mm-hmm. to adults? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in high school this week where there was a 20-year-old kid, mm-hmm. 20-year-old adult, yeah, yeah. right? So okay. how, how, I mean, how, how do you gain the perspective to serve those kids from K all the way up to 12 here? I have recently... Like, uh, this is in the last four or five months because I, I spent the this is my second year at Kestrel. I spent my first year trying to figure that out. How do you put things in place that are applicable to a five year old and an eighteen year old, and then a thirteen year old going through puberty? <laughs> it's it, to me. It's I spent a year trying to figure it out, and to be honest with you, I I came to the determination of I don't think there is. Something that, when I say this, I don't think there's something that you can say, okay, this is that's applicable K-12. And what I mean by that, I think it's important then you go back to your mission, vision, charter and say, okay, at the elementary school, how are you implementing this with fidelity? Because what the, the uniformity is who you are as a school. Not how you go about it per se, because a biology teacher and a third grade science teacher, yes, there are some curricular pieces from a you know, vertical alignment that need to occur, but not necessarily a, from a from. And there's some best practices from pedagogical that you can you can work on, and we do those things, strategies, best practices. But I think you need to give each of the school levels the freedom. I, what we were trying to do is put everybody in the same box, and I don't think that's what we need to do. I think what we need to do is say, this is the this is what is expected. This is what we are as Kestrel. And now you as an elementary or you as a middle school, you as a high school, have the freedom and flexibility to work within that sphere and try to reach and strive to meet the needs of our students at the best they can. So I have kind of given our principals permission in the last, I don't know, four to five months to say, let's stop trying to get in step together per se, but let's Let's you have the freedom of flexibility as instructional leaders to do what's in the best interest of your kids. I thought I started thinking about when I was a principal at elementary school. My schools fed to certain middle schools. I never talked to those middle school principals besides casual conversations at a principal's meeting. And we would do a little transition with our fifth graders. You know, we'd take them to the middle school. I mean, but it wasn't a a constant checking with them at the middle school level or them checking in with us to to make sure that. We were all in step together. I think there are things, as a building level leader, you need the freedom and flexibility to make decisions, what's best for your building, Under the with the understanding of this is the umbrella we're all under. So for me, it's more about striving. Like, you know, for me, I'm really pushing right now organization, rigor, relationships, and responsibility. And, and what does that look like at each school? Maybe it look a little different. Mm-hmm. You know, rigor at... A kindergarten classroom versus an eighth grade PE classroom versus a you know band classroom at the high school may look a little different, but there are certain expectations we all can have. Yeah, yeah 
that's a good. That's a good but answer. I'll say this: if somebody, if somebody can, sh- if so, if, if if you have or others have shown quality alignment from a K twelve perspective, I'd love to learn from that because those of us who are in that world, K eight, I think is not saying easy, but it's it's a little easier. High school by itself or six twelve, but that K twelve is. You know, like it's a, the Groundhog Day. That first step is a doozy. You know, it's a doozy. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it is difficult to do at times. And if there are good quality models, that would be great for those of us who are still trying to figure that out to see. Because those people who've done it are geniuses because it is hard to do. Yeah. Well, after you reach out to Mark, reach out to me. We'll put you on the podcast. Yeah, that's right. More. And, you know, Mark, I love the fact that you just put that out there because as much as you've seen uh, and now knowing your view on never being satisfied, it makes me uh, makes me kind of wonder, what do you do to keep your skills sharp and keep your fire lit to, to continue on this pursuit to find that holy grail of education you're looking for, the next thing that you're trying to figure out? Um, what keeps me going and keeps me sharp? I, I think, A, I don't know if I am sharp, you know, in that sense, you know. But, I mean, I'm being sincere. I mean, I think education is a social science. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think. I know education is a social science. And I say that to my staff all the time. I say that to parents all the time. And I, and, and I think it's something that we sometimes forget as an industry. And I, and I say that in the sense that there is no magic bullet. There is no, you do X, you always get Y. It's, it's trial and error. You know, I was talking to Alex Quigley at Maureen Joy about his journey. I mean, Maureen Joy is a phenomenal school. But when he talked about where he started and what it took, it took years to get to where it was. And, and it just, it made me appreciate the journey. You know, it made me think, oh, wow, it is that process. And education is so trying. So it takes trial and error and figuring it out. And so what keeps me sharp is fear of failure. Like, like the, 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 that promise I made way back when when I was in Atlanta where I'm not going to quit on these kids. And every time I see a kid not meeting their maximum potential, that's my fault. That's me. And my fear of failure is what drives me. Now, how I improve is I'm humble in the sense of I know I don't know it all. And so when I talk to great people like yourself and Dr. Miller and, uh, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Quigley and Jennifer Lucas and Forger, they inspire me and they provide great ideas. So I keep my ears and eyes open to hearing and listening. Going to the state board advisory meetings, you hear of schools doing things, you're like, wow, yes. And you start to, to, to think about how you can implement that. And so that continuing, to, that being green and growing is what I continually do. So I, I don't know if I go to like, uh, you know, I get, I get the journals and things of that nature, spark ideas, but more of it is just knowing that we've got to do better each and every day and striving for that. And that's a difficult thing to do, I'll be honest with you. Sure you know, it's difficult. So. so if you had to, the last question from me, if you had to kind of close, close uh, the loop on yourself and go back to your first year in school administration, what advice would you give yourself, things you've gleaned since that you'd want, that you wish you would have learned earlier and, and, and change your perspective It is something that I still struggle with. I mean, I think the the mark today would probably 
Well, the mark today, or I guess the mark in 10 years going back to the mark today, because this is kind of my first time as a organizational leader, and then I was a building level leader. I think in all of those pieces, even down back to the classroom, I think that the key piece is the human piece, the, the, the connection to people. Me, I am very, because, because I'm never satisfied and I'm, I'm let's go, we got to keep going. I sometimes forget about, or I, I don't appreciate as much the others around me. Cause, and I think people who are driven like that sometimes are like, kind of like, come on, y'all. That's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of level of frustration there. And I think what I need to remind myself on a regular basis and what if I could have reminded my previous self, just take some time to talk to people uh, because you can get a better understanding of what's going on. Um, it's so easy to be like, okay, listen, we got to get our PLCs going and where's the data and, you know, and be so driven on processes and procedures. And that's where my strengths are that there are people involved in that. And there's a reason things may not be getting done from maybe this isn't a good fit for you to, you know, you know your, your daughter's got an ear infection and she's been up crying all night and this is the third night in a row, you're just sleep deprived, I'm sorry, I'm really tired. And, and, and how do we help and support each other in that? And, and making sure that they also know from a leadership perspective, I'm human and, I, and it's a two-way street. And I think often, too, when you talk to your supervisor, that, that, that goes to that loneliness piece I talked to earlier. There is, you know, there's a, there's a disconnect there. And I think it can be difficult both ways. And I think the piece I tell myself 10, 15, 20 years ago and, and 10, 20 years, continue to invest in the people that you have around you because they're the ones that ultimately do the job. I, I, I don't teach a class anymore, you know. It's up to them. It's up to them. Excellent. Time you want to add? All right, Doctor Tracy, I got a ton. So, um, remind me, what was the name of the the elementary school in Wake County that you were in? Wilburn Elementary School. Wilburn Elementary. And when you were there, you had an incredible accomplishment Mm -hmm. with student growth. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And and what, what what did you do? to make this school, you know, talk about what it was at first and then after you left after a couple of years. Well, um, Wilburn was one of the lowest performing schools, just, you know, and I get from a historic perspective, I mean, I think they did like four or five years. This was some race to the top funds. So they had some funds to kind of do some things different. Um, so one of the things I think, so they had low performance and low growth. And, and um, to be honest with you, I didn't spend too much time looking at that because that wasn't, what happened in the past really had nothing right. to do with what we're doing today. And so uh, the way we went about it was, first and foremost, it's similar to what happened at, at uh, uh, Murrayville. I was able to hire my staff, and we were able to attract a great group of folks. And so I think one of the pieces I learned in that experience was the importance of quality teachers. You know, I'm not, I, I don't know what happened prior to my time. I don't know those teachers, but I know the teachers I brought in there were some phenomenal teachers who were committed and dedicated to helping students at risk. Mm-hmm. And so there was, I think, the first and foremost was the people there. I mean, I think that was just teachers who were highly committed. But on top of that, we used a lot of academic coaches, and I met with them almost hourly, you know, talking about what's going on in the classroom. We, I'm in the classrooms, and I talked to my wife's a teacher. I talk to teachers all the time. 
that their principals don't go in their their classrooms, but maybe two or three times a year plus now, like I, it's two dimes a day, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I just walked the elementary school. I'm in the high school. Like as an ED, you've got to be in the classroom because you've got to show that's important. But that goes to the focus we had on instruction, quality instruction. I truly believe, I don't think you need to teach to a test. I don't think you need to do any of that. But if you teach of a quality nature, no matter what model it is, education is social science, you're not going to reach everybody. But you're going to improve student learning. And I think that's what we did. We focused, we focused heavily on the instructional practices and demanded. Like, you know, there wasn't this school started at 8 o'clock, so at 8, 10 uh, we're start no. I, 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 if kids were in the building at seven thirty for an eight o'clock cl- start, instruction started at seven thirty. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do core classes, but you can do some for thirty. You got you've got them for thirty. We only have them so much. Right. Use that thirty minutes instructionally. Homework helped something. Be it social integration or academic integration, do something with the kids when we have them. And so that that relentless pursuit of instructional time was. What I felt on top of added to take great teachers and then make sure that you give them the tools and resources and support to make them better teachers, you're going to see growth. And, and we saw good growth. I mean, but it's that model also is tough on everybody because it's, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> so, so over two years, you, you guys made, I mean, were you not, I mean, I could be wrong, you were the highest we were growing one of, school, yeah, right? We were one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so fast forward now. Um, now you're in a charter school mm-hmm. that also had a few lull years. Mm-hmm. So talk about the differences in what you've experienced in, I'll, I'll call it reforming, mm-hmm. uh, Wilburn, and now and now working at Kestrel, which is in kind of like a regrouping phase. What advantages does a charter school have and what Disadvantages, maybe, does the charter school have because you don't have that central office backing, yeah, maybe? Yeah. So I think from a, an advantage standpoint, the, the piece that I think every principal who's ever been a principal wants is the ability to make swift human resource decisions. You know, and, and the ability to, to do that. You know, we have annual contracts, so it's one-year contract. It... You know, from a teaching perspective, it could be intimidating. You know, it's it's a you got to do it, or you know, unfortunately, this may not be a good fit for you. So, the ability to to make those changes, and also the ability to make changes of hey, this is where we're going. I mean, beyond the board piece, the day to day operational, you can simply say, okay, you know, we're going to change this today. This isn't working. That speedboat versus a tanker mentality, where you can swiftly maneuver the the waters versus slow turns, that's a significant advantage. If I were to be totally honest, and maybe I shouldn't be as honest as I'm about to be, what I felt the, the biggest disadvantage was the the, lim- the number of individuals who hadn't had significant training in teaching. So they had one or two strategies, but they didn't have the toolbox that you see from many teachers. And I'm not saying that those who went through an undergrad program, but I think one of the things that I see from a school system is they, the investment in professional development. The If you, you all have been in public schools, there is, okay, we're rolling this program out, all right? And there is, you're going to these trainings and you get these resources or we're doing that 
and I say, you say, okay, that, and, and what is the, what is the way you talk about in public schools is, well, two years later, that program's thrown out the window, we're doing something. But what that does do, though, is after a few years, you've, all the programs, the reason why a school implement, a system implements is because there's some quality tools and components to it, and it provides you that toolbox. And so, yeah, this didn't work, but you now have the skill set from that. And, and, and sometimes when I looked at the charter school, it was like the one, it was like the one trick. That was it. And so the ability to dig deeper or say, well, this kid didn't get it, so what am I supposed to do? That foundational piece that I saw, that I took adv- took for granted at the public school, um, I saw we needed to do more. So one of the things I did here was we hired, my first year here, I hired academic coaches for all three levels because because it's not the teacher's fault. It's not, it's not you don't get on the teacher. It's the fact that organization that we haven't invested in them and we needed to provide them support. So we provided, and... I talked about principals being academic, but there's other things they need to do as well. They need to be the driving force. They need to be the visionaries behind it. But that day-to-day, that, that sitting down, finding resources, going through the lesson plan, that, that, that's time-consuming. And that coach has the ability to do it. If they're quality people that can really do that, they can sit down at the grade level and do tremendous work in a short period of time. But then go to the next grade level and spend five hours a day working with teachers on perfecting their craft. Well, that's what we needed at the charter school. We needed that a little bit more. Awesome. So, since you've done both, you've opened a new school. Yeah. And you've, I'm going to call it rewiring mm-hmm. some schools. Which one's easier? Uh, wow. I would think in the, in the, well, I'm going to caveat that in the charter school world. Mm-hmm. I would think rewiring would be easier. Only because... What I see, having gone to the state board advisory meetings, the limit, the funding aspect of charter schools for opening a charter school, it's it's almost a miracle. It's it, it, honestly, it's almost a miracle to open a charter school and get past the first three years. Not because of vision, hard work, effort. It's because the fiscal requirements to compete. And meet the expectations are so great, that, and your ADM doesn't drive it. Now, opening up a public school would be easier than rewiring any school because you have the facilities. You have they're going to dump. You're not going. You opening up a public school with no furniture? That's not going to happen. You know, no computers? Not going to happen. No playground? Not going to happen. Th- those things will be in place top of the line. Nice. Because that's what happened to me. <laughs> it was great. I remember my first day at Murrayville. We opened up Murrayville. I walked in and there was stage, f- stage first of all, all right, in elementary school. The books were stacked to the ceiling. And the, and the key, I mean, like the, the comp- it was immense, the resources in retrospect going from a, you know, and a charter school where everything you have to bring in. You know, and so I think from a charter school world, it'd be much more difficult to open. I think the culture, the, 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 that piece would be a lot easier to deal with because when you're rewiring, you're changing all that and you're having to, to rewire, to reteach. Mm-hmm. That's difficult and it can be exhausting, but that can be done, particularly with the, this might not be a right fit for you and go bring in people. You can change that culture relatively quickly yeah. at a charter school world, but... These, these folks that I see going up in the office, I mean, like, 
And when you think about the schools that had have gone up to financial trouble this year, the vast majority of them are within the first five years of operation. That there's a reason for that, and it has. I think has less to do with the people or anything of that nature, has to do with the financial burden opening up a school without those resources to to maintain it are. Hopefully, I know the state is looking at uh, getting some funds from the federal government to help us start up. Hopefully they get that because I think you'll see a dramatic change if schools have startup funds. So you and I, we've, we've had many conversations about winning and I, and I love what you said about, you know, you know, about winning. It's, what does winning mean in education? How does Kestrel Heights measure success now, and how would what what, what would success be in two thousand and twenty one? So five years down the road. Well, I think success in the charter school world is measured in. I think in any school, is academic performance on integrated courses and tests are obviously a valuable component, but shouldn't be the driving a test should not drive that but it's it's a variable to me i think success and i think for me any educator that doesn't believe i shouldn't say that but i think what the key variable is growth i mean if we are meeting or exceeding growth even though it's based on an integrated course or an integrated test excuse me um that's that shows that we're having a positive impact on students and that's, you know, no matter where they start with, and that's a lesson from Atlanta, my kids were way below grade level. We moved them forward. And you can't, you, you, you chip away at the deficit. If someone's three years behind, you can't expect them to go in four years. You know, if you start three years behind at a grade level, by the end of that year, they need to jump four years to be on grade level. But why don't they do two? You know, you keep chipping away. So growth is one of those pieces. Um, I, I, other variables that I look at, from from a school perspective is parent satisfaction. I know we do some surveys, but we need to do more of that. Student satisfaction, um, staff satisfaction. Uh, we just did a teacher working condition survey. It'll be interesting to see what our data says. Um, and, and what we're implementing, a lot of schools use, there's are, are better assessment tools throughout the year to determine student performance. I think an end-of-grade assessment is, is important. But it's, it's autopsy daddy by the time you get it. We need that formative assessment throughout. So something, you know, a map testing, there's there's tons of uh, discovery ads got a good assessment tool. So some type of assessment tool during the year to measure student performance, I think is critical to that process. But for a charter school, I think ADM is a, is a, is a huge variable to determine success. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our school went through a tremendous cultural change prior to my arrival. I mean, that, that's what got me here. Mm-hmm. You know, we went, we grew by, I think, 35 students, the, you know, this year. Mm-hmm. So that's a good indication that what we're doing is is improving. And, and every day my uh, data manager is like, oh, we got, you know, 15 new, you know, we'll see if who shows up on day one. But it's good to see that people are still excited about attending Kestro. Yeah. By the way, uh, in five years, I want to see. I forgot to answer your question. In in five years, um, I think th- what I would see is true data based decision making processes that drive the organization, and a diversity of data points. I think sometimes 
I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I don't think people know what that means, data-driven decision-making. It's, 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 it's the triangulation or the, 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 the bringing together multiple data points to really get a better idea and having that to inform decisions. Not, not make decisions, but inform decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we get to an organization that's doing that, then we're bringing in student, parent, um, teacher data, instructional data. We're bringing in all of that information and we're making informed decisions. And I think once you do that, you're doing things for the best interest of individual kids, but also trends and, and addressing pieces. So since people are the variable, so what is your favorite interview question or process to ensure you're bringing in the right people? One of the questions, I, I don't know if it's a great one. I, I ask, what's your a red ticket item? And what I mean by that, a red ticket item is, I ask all my administrative staff this, is what drives you crazy? You know, because I think I think some people that say I, nothing drives me crazy, and then three weeks later they're in the job and they're fussing about something. I'm like, really? Like, because <laughs> I think you need to be honest about who you are, mm-hmm. and I think culturally you need to know if this is a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've always you know found people who are honest about that to be really good people to work with. That that's that's yielded. I don't know if that's a real superstar question, but because there's never a end, this job can chew you up you know because if you're looking for satisfaction when do you get it when do you get it and so it's stressful and you're dealing with real issues and real people and so if you don't know what drives you crazy or if you do but you're not willing to if you're not in touch with that and be comfortable with that then it's hard sometimes because then it's we're dealing with stuff that no one's being honest about and I think to run a team, you got to be able to close the door and be like, hey, man, that upset me. Or I don't like it when you change your mind or whatever. And and so um, those are the pieces that are red ticket items. I found great questions. Well, Mark, we've taken a good portion of your afternoon today, but I know that what you've shared with us and with the podcast listeners is – is worth it, and and it's going to change the way some people look at their daily job, and maybe even the way they look at being a, a dad or a man or a husband. So thank you very much. And uh, can you just tell us if somebody listens to the podcast and wants to reach out to you mm-hmm. to ask um, ask for your help or ask anything about further? Would you like to share how they can get a hold of you? Of course, you can reach me anytime. Uh, I'll give you uh, my. Even my cell phone number, because that's the best way to get in touch with me. My cell phone number is 240-535-6362. Again, 240-535-6362. But you can also reach me via email at Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, at KestrelHeights.org. And then that's, again, Tracy at KestrelHeights.org. All right. Thanks, Mark. Oh, man, this is a pleasure. I hope I've kept up with the great tradition of the people (laughs) previously. I was a little nervous, so thank you, sir. Thanks. All right. Jeff Gorski here again. Just wanted to give you a reminder, if you enjoyed what you heard and you'd like to hear more about what we do at Leaders Building Leaders, please go ahead onto our website. It's leaders-building-leaders.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can email me at jeff, that's G-E-O-F-F, at leaders-building-leaders.com. Thanks for listening, and make sure you tune in next month.